This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a doctoral candidate in English and publishing at Liverpool University in the UK. Episode 5, The Scribblers Who Created Christmas Charles Dickens is perhaps the most famous writer of the Victorian era. He's also a key player in the Victorian creation of Christmas, and especially Christmas stories. A Christmas carol is obviously a mainstay of Christmas plays and films, and it's become a kind of cultural icon, especially Scrooge and Tiny Tim. From Kermit's Bob Cratchit to Gingy and Shrek the Halls, giving Tiny Tim's famous line, God blesses everyone. God blesses everyone. So let's start with some historical context. Uh, Yeah, I'll take it away. So the world is a super busy place from 1810 to 1812 when Elizabeth Gaskell and then Charles Dickens were born. In 1810, the first Oktoberfest, or I'm going to slaughter this German, but I'll try anyway, Aus München. That's how I would have said it. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, I'm by no means an expert, though. Hope our German listeners, if we have any yet, aren't cringing, but I did my best. (laughs) So the first Oktoberfest occurred. It was a convivial gathering in which singing and folk dancing were performed. And it occurred, initially at least, to celebrate the October 18th, 1810 wedding of Crown Prince Ludwig and Princess Therese von Saxe-Hilberghausen. I know I slaughtered that. I My apologies. Also in 1810, Beethoven writes for Elise. Um, if you've ever taken piano lessons, you have probably played that song, probably like chicken pecked on the keys with two fingers. English inventor Peter Durand patents the tin can in 1810 as well. In 1811, the Battle of Tipping Canoe occurred and the Shawnee brothers Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa stopped their people from selling land to settlers and resisted the offers that were being made to them. So this is in the middle of the US policy of manifest destiny and displacing native peoples across the country. In 1812, Louisiana becomes the 18th state of the Union and in the same year, Napoleon retreats from Moscow. The United States and the British are at war again, still, I guess, over trading rights. Um, as part of this war, the British ally with Native and First Peoples tribes. Almost certainly not from magnanimous reasons. Not like us, historically. So, children's author Elizabeth George Spear writes about this in... Uh, I'm blanking on the title of the book. I know I should have written it down. I will link it in the show notes. Francis Scott Key, who is a prisoner of war at this period, is inspired to write the poem that would become our national anthem, The Star-Spangled Banner. Um, so other notable happenings in the early lives of Gaskell and Dickens include the 1813 publication of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, the British sacking and burning of Washington, D.C. in 1813, Norway's independence also in 1813, and the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. So we want to tell you a little bit about the main players in this episode, and that is Charles Dickens and Elizabeth Gaskell. Dickens was born on 7th February 1812. He's the second of seven children and the first son of John Dickens, an assistant clerk in the Navy Pay Office, and Elizabeth Dickens, née Barrow. So you already know he was famous and immensely successful Victorian writer. 
If you listen to the Wilkie Collins episode, you also know that when he was 12, his father was taken to debtor's prison, so he had to start working to help pay the family expenses. Some other fast facts. He and his older sister Fanny learned the alphabet, the rudiments of English, and Latin from their mother before going on to more formal schooling. As a child, Dickens was a bookworm. He constantly read and reread the books in his father's little library. The 18th century essayists, Robinson Crusoe, The Vicar of Wakefield, Don Quixote, The Wits of Fielding and Smollett, and other novels and stories, most notably The Arabian Nights and The Tales of the Genie. In 1828, Dickens taught himself shorthand to prepare for a career change. He wanted to stop working as a solicitor's clerk and become a journalist. At this time, his future BFF Wilkie Collins was just four years old. His main relationships seemed to be with people who were significantly younger than him. I'm not going to psychoanalyse, but it's just a fact. In December 1833, Dickens's first published literary work appeared in the monthly magazine. as a farcical little story of middle-class manners called A Dinner at Poplar Walk, and it's later retitled as Mr Minns and His Cousin. Three years later, Dickens was offered work providing narratives to fit illustrations for a project that would be known as the Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club, and that was published in part issued by Chapman Hall from March 1836 to November 1837. When the artist with creative control of the project, Robert Seymour, committed suicide a few months in, Dickens took control, and the result is an episodic novel that literally changed the course of British publishing. For more information about um, the revolutionary nature of this publication, see episode 2.5, Newspaper Novels. And then on 2nd of April, 1836, Dickens married Catherine Hogarth. Oliver Twist began serialisation in Bentley's Miscellany, which Dickens had just become editor of, in February 1837. In 1842, Dickens made his first visit to the US. In October 1843, he began feverishly writing A Christmas Carol, and you can hear Neil Gaiman do an amazing performative reading of it based on Dickens' own performance notes. In the show notes, we will link to that. So he wrote a number of Christmas books. Obviously, Christmas Carol is one of them, but there's also, in 1844, The Cricket and the Crickets on the Hearth. In 1846, The Battle of Life. And in 1848, The Haunted Man, which is the last one that isn't a short story collection. On the 30th of March 1850, Dickens launched his own literary journal called Household Words which we'll speak about more later. In 1851, he met Wilkie Collins. Dickens was 39 and Collins was 27. So we've already touched on the fact that quite significant age gap. I'm just going to pop in here because I love this novel. From 1852 to 3, Dickens was busy writing and publishing Bleak House, another serial novel and uh, one I just kind of fell in love with the first time I read. And then I'll pop back because this is the bit that I'm interested in. So in 1857 to 8, Dickens' family life begins to fall apart at the seams. He often had to hire actresses to play the part of his wife and daughters at public appearances, and it didn't help that he had begun an affair with 19-year-old actress Ellen Nellie Ternan, whose sister is the subject of my thesis. And fun fact, he met her when they were putting on a play, and his 18-year-old daughter, Katie, couldn't do her part. I think she was she was ill or had other commitments. So Nellie replaced his literal daughter, which is how they met. Lovely. So eventually he decided to pursue a formal separation from his wife, and his wife's family decided to spread rumours, and Dickens published accounts of these domestic affairs in the Times. So at this point in our recording, we had a series of technological malfunctions and mishaps, which means that from this point on in our episode, Eleanor's half of the recording is not the sound quality we'd hoped it would be. 
but due to the holidays and scheduling constraints, we were unable to re-record this episode before releasing it to you. So um, this is just to say that we know about the issue, we apologize for it, and we hope to have it fixed soon. As time, Dickens began to give more and more public performances of his work. On the 30th of April 1859, Dickens launched his second literary journal, All the Year Round, in which Wilkie Collins's work would often feature prominently. Dickens himself inaugurated the journal's fiction series with his second historical novel, The Town of Two Cities, which was serialised from, from April to November 1859. From 1867 to 8, Dickens undertook another American tour. Um, while in the US, he began writing Edwin Drood, a murder mystery novel which he would never publish and which caused great strain in his relationship with Collins. Dickens lived long enough to complete only six numbers of the novel, and soon a whole Drood industry, which still flourishes today, grew up concerned with providing a plausible solution to the mystery. Dickens was working on Drood in his little Swiss chalet, the gift of his actor friend Charles Factor, in the garden at Gad's Hill on the morning of 8th June 1870, the day on which he later suffered a stroke from which he died the following day. An alternative oral tradition about how Dickens died is quoted by Claire Tomlin in her book The Invisible Woman. According to this account, he suffered his stroke while visiting Nellie in Peckham and was taken in an unconscious state by her in a closed cab to Gad's Hill and delivered into Georgina's care. His wish to be buried in the small graveyard under Rochester Castle Wall was overridden by national demand that he should rest in Westminster Abbey, where he was accordingly buried on the 14th of June. But it was a strictly private ceremony that he'd so forcefully enjoined in his will. I think that's really fascinating that they just disregarded his final wishes. It is really interesting. It's also what I feel he would do for other people, in a way. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a very Dickens move. It's karma. Karma Dickens. Okay, um, so I'm going to jump back two years to 1810, two years from Dickens' birth, not death, to talk about the inimitable Elizabeth Gaskell. So she is known to us now as a Victorian novelist and short story writer, and she was born on the 29th of September, 1810, in Bellevue House, Chelsea, London. She was the second surviving child of William Stevenson, who was baptized in 1770 and died 1829. He was also a writer and a minor treasury official. And his first wife, Elizabeth, born 1771, died 1811, the daughter of Samuel and Mary Holland of Sandalbridge Farm near Knutsford in Cheshire. I think we should do a full episode on Gaskell at some point, because even though she was very well known in the period and is still well known academically, most people, if you say Elizabeth Gaskell, will just give you a blank stare. So I think she counts as a lesser known Victorian writer, so we're going to keep our biography of her brief here, and um, we'll, at some point in the future, flesh this out in a full episode. Gaskell's mother died when she was 13 months old, so she was taken to Cheshire to live with her mother's sister, Hannah. In 1814, William Stevenson, so Gaskell's father, married uh, his second wife, Catherine Thompson, the sister of Anthony Todd Thompson, who was the doctor who had delivered Elizabeth. Um, so a small world kind of situation going on. The two of them had two more children, but Elizabeth stayed in Nutsford, visiting her father and stepmother very rarely. She was, quote, very, very unhappy when she visited them, she later wrote, adding that if it weren't for the comfort of the river and some local friends, quote, I think my child's heart would have broken, end quote. And this is taken from uh, a collection of her correspondence, which we will link in the show notes. 
Gaskell was educated at home, like so many children were, at least in their early lives during the Victorian period, by her aunts and uh, occasional outside tutors, and then later educated at the Sunday school of Brook Street Chapel until 1821. So her family and her education really entrenched her in the tenets of Unitarianism, which rejected as unknowable mystical doctrines such as the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, and placed great stress on human rather than divine responsibility for society. I think at some point we should maybe do a special mini-episode on the major religious camps of the period, or uh, denominations, I guess, because so many of the writers that we'll end up talking about on the podcast were really and deeply engaged with them. Elizabeth left school in June 1826, returning to Nutsford and staying with Holland and relations in Wales and Liverpool. Her letters suggest that she was already writing stories, but none of her early work survives, which is so sad. In Manchester in 1831, she met William Gaskell, who was born in 1805 and died in 1884, an assistant minister at the Unitarian Cross Street Chapel, which was a powerful center of reform, and had a congregation largely composed of the families of prosperous manufacturers and professional men. So apparently Gaskell really hated having to perform the duties of being a minister's wife, so socializing, visiting all the um, congregation. It kept her so busy that she couldn't do the things she would rather do, but also kept her in constant contact with the Manchester poor, which ultimately inspired her novel writing career in major ways. Between 1838 and 1840, Manchester was really upset, rife with um, clashes between the Chartists and anti-corn law leaguers. At the same time, a new depression in 1840 caused widespread destitution, bringing exhausting relief work. Gaskell's first stories began to appear in 1847. The first was Libby Marsh's Three Eras, published anonymously in 1847 in Howitt's Journal, which also carried The Sexton's Hero and Christmas Storms and Sunshine in 1848. Her first novel, Mary Barton, A Story of Manchester Life, was finished in late 1847 and sent to several publishers before William Howitt negotiated terms with Chapman and Hall. It was published in 1848 and earned lots of praise from many different camps. So um, Thomas Carlyle really loved it. People who were really politically active really loved it. It was kind of a a call to arms in terms of um, policy regarding the poor and and the plight of, of people in manufacturing towns. Yeah, and I just want to add that 1848 is a really opposite year for this to be published because it's the year of revolution in Europe. So the Communist Manifesto is mm. published in that year. It's kind of, I don't want to say lucky, that's when it got accepted for publication, but it, I think it probably worked in her favour in sales figures. At some point, I think a mini-sode on just the year 1848 would be interesting. Oh yeah, because um, just like internationally that that time period really shapes the the literature that comes after. So I I wrote in the show notes that Gaskell is most famous for North and South, which I don't know if is really the case. That's what I knew her for before like really digging um, into her life. But it's um, one of her major novels and it first appears as a weekly serial in Dickens' Household Words from September of 1854 to January of 1855. 
She also, right around this time, wrote a biography of her friend Charlotte Bronte, which I think was actually a little bit of a scandal. Um, and I'll put some links in the show notes about that. We'll go into it more um, when we get around to uh, the, the Gaskell-full episodes. At tea with her family on 12 November 1865, Gaskell collapsed suddenly with a massive heart attack and died almost instantly. She was buried on the 17th of November in the cemetery of Brook Street Chapel, Nutsford, where William Gaskell was later buried beside her in 1884. Like Dickens, she left a novel unfinished, Wives and Daughters. And um, while preparing for this episode, I was lucky enough to stumble across a link to the way that the Gaskell celebrated Christmas on Twitter, um, and I have shared that in the show notes as well. It's um, written up and posted on the Elizabeth Gaskell House Museum's website and is a really interesting insight into um, some of the things we're discussing today or the background for some of them. Today we're going to be talking about the Christmas numbers of Dickens's journals, Household Words, and All the Year Round. So every year he would put out a special Christmas issue which cost two pence, which sounds really cheap, but usually they would be a penny price. They were, though, twice as long. So usually an issue of either of these, or certainly of all the year round, would be 24 pages and these were 48. So it's kind of a double issue. So what he would do, I've just quoted a really useful website called the Victorian Web to describe what these numbers do. So they say, The formula that Dickens pursued relentlessly from 1852 to 1866 involved gathering together a group of disparate individuals of both genders and a range of ages, classes, vocations and backgrounds who would while away a Christmas Eve, it's not always Christmas Eve, just to point out, by recounting various types of tales in the manner of the pilgrims in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So Dickens would provide selected writers with a broad theme. It's kind of a compliment to be sent his little theme, because it, you know, it means he wants to give you a place in his highest circulating issue of the year, but he's also quite, I don't want to use the word controlling, but he knows exactly what he wants. <laughs> So he would send these selected writers a broad theme and construct a scenario where a group of strangers were brought together and each told a story. Gaskell contributed to five of these. In 1852, the number was titled Another Round of Stories by the Christmas Fire. It consisted of stories that depended on the relationship between the story and its teller. The tales were intended to be appropriate to that narrator, illustrating their place in the story and gaining effect from the particular teller. The story Gaskell contributed was called The Old Nurse's Story. I just want to take a moment to recommend that you buy the Penguin Little Black Book version. I think they're like 80p, they're really cheap. I don't know if they have this in the States, but it was a kind of initiative a few years ago to put out thin volumes for very little money. Yeah, I'll, I'll dig around on Amazon and we can put links to UK and US versions. Yeah, I picked that up and it was a really, it's a really good story. Yeah, so that's one of the Christmas numbers she wrote before. She also wrote before more. So there's The Squire's Tale in 1853, The Manchester Marriage in 1858, The Ghost in the Garden Room in 1859, and How the First Floor Went to Crowley Castle in 1863. I've suggested to Courtney that we focus today on The Ghost in the Garden Room, and there's a few reasons for that. So most selfishly, it's a setting that is kind of personally special for me. It begins in a place called Ripon and ends in York. I lived in York for five years, and it's still my favourite place in the world, and my grandmother was born in Ripon, so I've been a bit selfish choosing this, but there we go. And then more academically, the backstory to this number is perhaps the most interesting. I mentioned before that Dickens was a very hands-on editor, <laughs> and he complained to his friend and literary agent, John Forster, that as yet, not a story has come to me in the least belonging to the idea, the simplest in the world, which I myself described in writing in the most elaborate manner. 
I really wanted to get my hands on his brief and see if it really was elaborately described and how simple it was. Yeah. <laughs> Dickens is such a... I think you... I mean, you you didn't want to use the word controlling earlier, but but I think that it is a very apt term for... Dick. He had very specific ideas about what he wanted out of his contributors. Yeah. And I think he overestimates how simple he is in his description of what he wants. Mm-hmm. So it might seem a little unusual to us, but the stories in these Christmas issues tended to be ghost stories. The December 1859 number was called The Haunted House. So what Dickens would do was he would write the first part. Everyone writes a chapter that is usually a couple of pages, maybe five to eight pages. And Dickens writes the first one which sets up the story. In Dickens's first part of this number, The Haunted House, the main narrator John and his sister had rented an old house over Christmas, and they want their friends to investigate and prove that there are no ghosts in the house. On his first visit to the house, John travels in a train carriage with what he calls a wrapper. It's a kind of medium. This unusual man then tells the narrator about the star-studded ghost lineup that is haunting their carriage. Socrates is there, along with Pythagoras, and he takes the liberty of saying that he hopes the narrator likes travelling. Other famous ghosts include Galileo and John Milton. <laughs> Superstar lineup. Mm-hmm. And John tells us that it was easy to see that the house was an avoided house, a house that was shunned by the village to which my eye was guided by a church spire some half a mile off, a house that nobody would take. And the natural influence was that it had the reputation of being a haunted house. But John's skeptical, and he thinks it's just talk, and he tells a pub landlord who's trying to convince him the house really is haunted, that if he and I were persistently to whisper in the village that any weird-looking, old, drunken tinker of the neighbourhood had sold himself to the devil, he would come in time to be suspected of that commercial venture. <laughs> Dickens can be quite funny when he wants to be. I do enjoy that. Yes. But then all of their servants repeatedly run away out of fear, and John's sister Patty suggests that instead of replacing them, they'll do all the housework themselves, which the suggestion that they do their own housework absolutely shocks John. He's mortified. Right. But they'll do the housework themselves and invite guests to help. Huh. Yeah, it's 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 odd. It sounds delightfully bizarre. <laughs> but it also reminds me of um I don't know if you're a fan of Vincent Price, but what is th- he has uh there's a movie, what is it, the House on Haunted Hill or something? My knowledge of Vincent Price is an exclusive to the Simpsons episode that included him. Well, um, Vincent Price, 1959, House on Haunted Hill. He's um, a rich married man who invites a bunch of other people to this haunted house to stay the night. And if they stay through the night, they make a lot of money. So they're there to like prove ghosts don't exist also. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, because the story behind this story is that Dickens was talking to a friend whose name I'll, I forget, but we'll put it in the show notes which friend it was, who was kind of a spiritualist. And Dickens was saying, no, the only thing people are haunted by is their own pasts. Mm. And that leads nicely into what his idea was for the stories. Because the idea was that they would show that the guests were not haunted by spirits, but by the ghosts of their past selves. Mm. Nice. Some of the other submissions, I think, kind of might have warranted his annoyance when he says that no one's got his concept. Hesper threatens the ghost in the clock room that's a real ghost speaking, although Dickens has tried to reframe this by suggesting an affinity between the ghost and the speaker's wife. George Augustus Sala's Ghost in the Double Room fits somewhat better with the brief, and it's a first-person narrative where the ghost is the egg. Do you believe it's like malaria? <laughs> so the ghost is sickness. If you listen to the Mary Elizabeth Braddon episodes, you all have 
um, heard us mention Sala before, and he is um, a very sensational writer. So I'm actually sort of surprised that his story fits better <laughs> than someone else, because I would expect it to be way out there, just based on his reputation. Yeah, it's an unusual take, but it's not especially supernatural. Mm. The most out there is Adeline Ann Practice. Her piece is about the ghost in the picture room, and it's just like a slightly bizarre narrative poem. Huh. It's a perfectly good poem, but it just makes no sense in the context. And then Wilkie Collins, God bless his heart, his ghost in the cupboard room is a Benjamin candlestick. And I believe from memory it's about the sight of a bedroom candlestick. Modern people would say that it triggers him. He has some kind of PTSD reaction from a candlestick. Hmm. And then Dickens himself, ever the uh, controlling guy, wrote two of the remaining three chapters. The ghost in Master B's room and the ghost in the corner room. Uh, presumably he's happy with his own contributions. Though I love the image of him reading his own story and being like, this guy didn't get it. And then the other, of course, is Gaskell's. And this story is much closer to Dickens' ideas about the hauntings than he might have realised. And we don't want to spoil that, so perhaps it'd be better to read it before continuing the discussion. Absolutely. I just want to say before we start in um, that this really sounds like a party game slash a game writers play a lot called Exquisite Corpse, in which everyone contributes pieces and out of it a, a whole poem or story is composed. Or maybe more like Round Robin, in which somebody starts and ends the story, but you just kind of pass it on to one another. But this is a really interesting kind of collaborative style that I don't think we really see that much in, in modern publishing anymore. No, I certainly can't think of any examples. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it'd be interesting to know whether it's particular to Dickens or other people, because I don't off the top of my head know anyone else doing this. No, me neither. Maybe we'll find out in the course of our episode research in the future. <laughs> I know of collaborative novels. I actually know someone who's doing a thesis on collaborative novels, but not periodical issues. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so let's start reading The Ghost in the Garden Room. The Ghost in the Garden Room. I'll just point out as well that Dickens wrote the first bit of this, so what he would do is everyone contributed their stories, and then he would add an initial paragraph. The first bit of this is written by Dickens, and I'll tell you when we go back to Gaskell. My friend and solicitor rubbed his bald forehead, which is quite Shakespearean, with his hand, after a manner he has when I consult him professionally, and took a very large pinch of snuff. My bedroom, said he, has been haunted by the ghost of a judge. Of, of a, a judge? judge? Said all the company. Of a judge, in his wig and robes, as he sits upon the bench at Assize time. As I have lingered in the great white chair at the sight of my fire, when we have all retired for the night to our respective rooms, I have seen and heard him. I never shall forget the description he gave me, and I never have forgotten it since I first heard it. Then you have seen and heard him before, Mr. Undery, said my sister. Often. Consequently, he is not peculiar to this house? By no means. He returns to me in many intervals of quiet leisure, and his story haunts me. We one and all called for the story, that it might haunt us likewise. It fell within the range of his judicial experience, said my friend and solicitor. And this was the judge's manner of summing it up. Those words did not apply, of course, to the great pinch of snuff that followed them, but to the words that followed the great pinch of snuff. They were these. And this is where Daskal takes back over. 
Not many years after the beginning of the century, a worthy couple of the name of Huntroyd occupied a small farm in the North Riding of Yorkshire. They had married late in life, although they were very young when they first began to keep company with each other. Nathan Huntroyd had been farm servant to Hester Rose's father and had made up to her at a time when her parents thought she might do better. And so, without much consultation of her feelings, they had dismissed Nathan in a somewhat cavalier fashion. He had drifted far away from his former connections, when an uncle of his died, leaving Nathan, by this time upwards of 40 years of age, enough money to stock a small farm, and yet to have something over to put in the bank against bad times. One of the consequences of this behest was that Nathan was looking out for a wife and a housekeeper in a kind of discreet and leisurely way, when one day he heard that his old love, Hester, was not married and flourishing, as he had always supposed her to be, but a poor maid of all work in the town of Ripon. For her father had had a succession of misfortunes, which had brought him in his old age to the workhouse. Her mother was dead, her only brother struggling to bring up a large family, and Hester herself, a hard-working, homely-looking, a 37, servant. Nathan had a kind of growling satisfaction, which only lasted for a minute or two, however. In hearing of these turns of fortune's wheel, he did not make many intelligible remarks to his informants, and to no one else did he say a word. But a few days afterwards, he presented himself, dressed in his Sunday best, and Mrs. Thompson's back door in Ripon. Hester stood there in answer to the good sound knock his good sound oak stick made. She with the light full upon her, he in shadow. For a moment there was silence. He was scanning the face and figure of his old love, for twenty years unseen. The comely beauty of youth had faded away entirely. She was, as I have said, homely looking, plain featured, but with a clean skin and pleasant frank eyes. Her figure was no longer round, but tidily wrapped in a blue and white bedgown, tied around her waist by her white apron strings, and her short red linsey petticoat showed her tidy feet and ankles. Her former lover fell into no ecstasy. He simply said to himself, She'll do, and forthwith began upon his business. Hester, thou dost not mind me. I am Nathan, as thy father turned off at a minute's notice, for thinking of thee for a wife. Twenty year come Michaelmas next. I've not thought much upon matrimony since, but Uncle Ben has died, leaving me a small matter in the bank, and I have taken Nab and Farm and put in a bit of stock, and shall want a missus to see after it. Wilt like to come? I'll not mislead thee. It's dairy, and it might have been arable. But arable takes more horses than it suited me to buy, and I'd the offer of a tiny lot of kine. That's all. If thou'lt have me, I'll come for thee as soon as the hay is gotten in. Hester only said, Come in and sit thee down. He came in and sat down. For a time she took no more notice of him than of his stick, bustling about to get dinner ready for the family whom she served. He, meanwhile, watched her brusque, sharp movements and repeated to himself, she'll do. After about twenty minutes of silence this employed, he got up, saying, Well, Hester, I'm going. When shall I come back again? Please thyself, thou'll please me, said Hester, in a tone that she tried to make light and indifferent, but he saw that her colour came and went, and that she trembled while she moved about. In another moment, Hester was soundly kissed, but when she looked round to scold the middle-aged farmer, he appeared so entirely composed that she hesitated. He said, I have pleased myself, and thee too, I hope. Is it a month's wage and a month's warning? Today is the 8th. July 8th is our wedding day. I have no time to spend a wooing before then, and wedding must not take long. Two days is enough to throw away at our time of life. It was like a dream, but Hester resolved not to think more about it till her work was done, and when all was cleaned up for the evening, she went to give her mistress warning, 
telling her all the history of her life in a very few words. That day months she was married from Mrs. Thompson's house. The issue of the marriage was one boy, Benjamin. A few years after his birth, Hester's brother died at Leeds, leaving 10 or 12 children. Hester sorrowed bitterly over this loss, and Nathan showed her much quiet sympathy although he could not but remember that Jack Rose had added insult to the bitterness of his youth. He asked his wife to make ready to go by the wagon to Leeds. He made light of the household difficulties which came thronging into her mind after all was fixed for her departure. He filled her purse that she might have wherewithal to alleviate the immediate wants of her brother's family. And as she was leaving, he ran after the wagon. Stop, stop, he cried. Hetty, if thou wilt, if it will not be too much for thee, bring back one of Jack's wenches for company, like... We've enough and to spare, and alas will make the house winsome, as a man may say. The wagon moved on, while Hester had such a silent swelling of gratitude in her heart, as was both thanks to her husband and thanksgiving to God. And that was the way that little Bessie Rose became to be an inmate of the Nabsend farm. Virtue met with its own reward in this instant, and in a clear and tangible shape too, which need not delude people in general into thinking that such is the usual nature of virtue's rewards. Bessie grew up a bright, affectionate, active girl, a daily comfort to her uncle and aunt. She was so much a darling in the household that they even thought her worthy of their only son, Benjamin, who was perfection in their eyes. It is not often the case that two plain, homely people have a child of uncommon beauty. She did sometimes, and Benjamin Huntroyd was one of those exceptional cases. A hard-working labourer and care-marked farmer, and a mother who could never have been more than tolerably comely in her best days, produced a son who might have been an earl's son for grace and beauty. Even the hunting squires of the neighbourhood reined up their horses to admire him. As he opened the gates for them, he had no shyness. He was so accustomed to admiration from strangers, and adoration from his parents from his earliest years. As for Bessie Rose, he ruled imperiously over her heart from the time she first set eyes on him, and as she grew older, she grew on in loving, persuading herself that what her uncle and aunt loved so dearly it was her duty to love dearest of all. But every unconscious symptom of the young girl's love for her cousin, his parents smiled and winked, always going on as they wished. No need to go far afield for Benjamin's wife. The household could go on as it was now, Nathan and Hester sinking into the rest of years and relinquishing care and authority to those dear ones, who in process of time might bring other dear ones to share their love. But Benjamin took it all very coolly. He had been sent to a day school in the neighbouring town, a grammar school in the high state of neglect in which the majority of such schools were 30 years ago. Neither his father nor his mother knew much of learning. All that they knew, and that directed their choice of a school, was that they could not, by any possibility, part with their darling to a boarding school. There's some schooling he must have, and that Squire Pollard's son went to Highminster Grammar School. Squire Pollard's son, and many another son destined to make his parents' hearts ache, went to this school. If it had not been so utterly bad a place of education, the simple farmer and his wife might have found it out sooner. But not only did the pupils there learn vice, they also learnt deceit. Benjamin was naturally too clever to remain a dunce, or else, if he had chosen so to be, there was nothing in Highminster Grammar School to hinder his being a dunce of the first water. But to all appearance, he grew clever and gentlemanlike. His father and mother were even proud of his airs and graces when he came home for the holidays, taking them for proofs of his refinement, although the practical effects of such refinement was to make him express his contempt for his parents' homely ways and simple ignorance. By the time he was eighteen, an article clerk in an attorney's office at Highminster he had quite declined to becoming a mere clodhopper, that is to say, a hard-working, honest farmer like his father. Bessie Rose was the only person who was dissatisfied with him. The little girl of fourteen instinctively felt there was something wrong about him. Alas, two years more, the girl of sixteen worshipped his very shadow, and would not see that aught could be wrong with one so soft-spoken, so handsome, 
so kind his cousin Benjamin. For Benjamin had found out that the way to control his parents out of money for every indulgence he fancied was to pretend to forward their innocent scheme and make love to his pretty cousin Bessie Rose. He carried just enough for her to make this work a necessity not disagreeable at the time he was performing it, but he found it tiresome to remember her little claims upon him when she was no longer present. The letters he had promised her during his weekly absences at Highminster, the trifling commissions she had asked him to do for her, were all considered in the light of troubles, and even when he was with her he resented the inquiry she made as to his mode of passing his time, or what female acquaintances he had in Highminster. When his apprenticeship was ended, nothing would serve him but that he must go up to London for a year or two. Poor Farmer Huntroyd was beginning to repent of his ambition of making his son Benjamin a gentleman, but it was too late to repine now. Both father and mother felt this, and however sorrowful they might be, they were silent, neither demurring nor assenting to Benjamin's proposition when first he made it. But Bessie, through her tears, noticed that both her uncle and aunt seemed unusually tired that night, and sat hand in hand on the fireside settle, idly gazing into the bright flames as if they saw in it pictures of what they had once hoped their lives would have been. Bessie rattled about among the supper things as she put them away after Benjamin's departure, making more noise than usual, as if noise and bustle was what she needed to keep her from bursting out crying, and having one keen glance taken in the position and looks of Nathan and Hester, she avoided looking in that direction again, for fear at the sight of their whistle faces should make her own tears overflow. Sit thee down, lass, sit thee down. Bring the creepy stool to the fireside, and let's have a bit of a talk over the lad's plans, said Nathan at last, rousing himself to speak. Bessie came and sat down and pushed the fire, and threw her apron over her face as she rested her head on both hands. Nathan felt as if it was a chance which of the two women would burst out crying first, so he thought he would speak, in hopes of keeping off the infection of tears. Didst ever hear of this mad plan afore, Bessie? No, never! voice came muffled and changed from under her apron. Hester felt as if the tone, both of question and answer, implied blame, and this she could not bear. We should have looked to it when we bound him, for of necessity it would have come to this, as examines and catechises, and I don't know what all forth him to be put through in London. It's not his fault. Which on us said it were? asked Nathan, rather put out. Thought for that matter, a few weeks would carry him over the mire and make him as good a lawyer as any judge among em. Ud Lassen, the attorney, told me that, in a talk I had wi' him a bit sin. Nah, nah, it's the lad's own hankering after London that makes him want for to stay there for a year, let alone two. Nathan shook his head. And if it be his own hankering... Said Bessie, putting down her apron, her face all aflame and her eyes swollen up. I do not see harm in it. Lads aren't like lasses to be teed to their own fireside like the crook yonder. It's fitting for a young man to go abroad and see the world before he settles down. Hester's hand sought Bessie's, and the two women sat in sympathetic defiance of any blame that should be thrown on the beloved absent. Nathan only said, Nay, wench, don't a wax up so. What's done's done, and worse, it's my doing. I mun needs make my bairn a gentleman, and we mun pay for it. Dear uncle, he wouldn't spend much. I'll answer for it, and I'll scrimp and save in the house to make it good. Wench, said Nathan solemnly, it were not paying in cash I were speaking on, it were paying in heart's care and heaviness of soul. London is a place where the devil keeps court as well as King George, and my poor chap has more nor once well he fallen into his clutches there. I don't know what he'll do when he gets close within sniff of him. Don't let him, father, said Hester, for the first time taking this view. Hitherto she'd only thought of her own grief at parting with him. Father, if you think so, keep him here and safe under her own eye. 
Nay, said Nathan, he's past time of life for that. Why, there's not one on us knows where he is at this present time, and he's not gone out of our sight an hour. He's too big to be put back in the go-kart, mother, or kept within doors with the chair turned bottom upwards. Wish you were a wee barn lying in my arms again. It were a sore day when I weaved him. I think life's been getting sore and sore every turn is turned towards manhood. Come, lass, that's none the way to be talking. Be thankful to Marcy that thou'st gettin a man for the son as stands five foot eleven in stockings and never a sick piece about him. We wouldn't grudge him for his fling, will we, Bess, my wench? He'll be coming back in a year, or maybe a bit more, and be a for settling in a quiet town like where a wife that's known so fur from me at this very minute. And we would folk as we get into years, must get up farm and tack a bit on a house near Lawyer Benjamin. And so the good Nathan, his own heart heavy enough, tried to soothe his womankind. But of the three, his eyes were longest in closing, his apprehensions the deepest founded. I misdoubt me I had not done well by the lad, I misdoubt me sore, was a thought that kept him awake till day began to dawn. Some it's wrong about him, or folk would not look at me with such piteous like ain even when they speak on him. I can see the meaning of it, thus I'm too proud to let on. And Lawson, too, he holds his tongue more nor he should do, when I ax him how my lad's gotten on, and what sort of lawyer he'll make. God be merciful to Hester and me if the lad's gone away. God be merciful. But maybe it's this lion waking all the night through that makes me so fearful. Why, when I were his age, I dare be bound. I should have spent money fast enough if I could have come by it. But I had to arn it, and that makes a great differ. Well, it were hard to thwart the child of our old age, and we waited so long for to have Next morning, Nathan rode Moggy the cart horse into Highminster to see Mr. Lawson. Anybody who saw him ride out of his own yard would have been struck with a change in him. When he returned, a change more than a day's unusual exercise should have made in a man of his years. He scarcely held the reins at all. One jerk of Moggy's head would have plucked them out of his hands. His head was bent forward, his eyes looking on some unseen thing, with long, unwinking gaze. But as he drew near home on his return, he made an effort to recover himself. No need to threaten them, he said. Lads will be lads, but I didn't think he had it in him to be so thoughtless, young as he is. Well, well, he'll maybe get more wisdom in London. Anyways, it's best to cut him off for such evil lads as Will Hawker and such like. It's they as have led my boy astray. He were a good chap till he knowed them. A good chap till he knowed them. But he put all his cares in the background when he came into the house place, but both Bessie and his wife met him at the door and both would fain lend a hand to take off his great coats. There, wenches, there. Ye might let a man alone for to get out on's clothes. Why, I might have struck thee, lass. And he went on talking, trying to keep them off for a time, from the subject that all had at heart. But there was no putting them off forever, and by dint of repeated questioning on his wife's part, more was got out than he had ever meant to tell, enough to grieve both his hearers sorely, and yet the brave old man still kept the worst in his own breast. The next day, Benjamin came home for a week or two before making his great start to London. His father kept him at a distance, and was solemn and quiet in his manner to the young man. Bessie, who had shown anger enough at first, and had uttered many a sharp speech, began to relent, and then to feel hurt and displeased that her uncle should persevere so long in his cold, reserved manner, and Benjamin just going to leave them. Her aunt went tremblingly busy about the clothes presses and drawers, as if afraid of letting herself think either of the past or the future. Only once or twice, coming behind her son, she suddenly stooped over his sitting figure and kissed his cheek and stroked his hair. 
Bessie remembered afterwards, long years afterwards, how he had tossed his head away with nervous irritability on one of these occasions, and had muttered, her aunt did not hear it, but Bessie did. Can't you leave a man alone? Towards Bessie herself, he was pretty gracious. No other words express his manner. It was not warm, nor tender, nor cousinly, but there was an assumption of underbred politeness towards her as a young, pretty woman, which politeness was neglected in his authoritative or grumbling manner towards his mother, or his sullen silence before his father. He once or twice ventured on a compliment to Bessie on her personal appearance. She stood still and looked at him with astonishment. How's my eyes changed since last thou sawst them, she asked, that thou must be telling me about em in that fashion. I'd rather by a deal see thee helping the mother when she's dropped her knitting needle and cannot see in the dusk for to pick it up. But Bessie thought of his pretty speech about her eyes long after he had forgotten making it and would have been puzzled to tell the colour of them. Many a day after he was gone did she look earnestly in the little oblong looking glass which hung up against the wall of her little sleeping chamber, but which she used to take down in order to examine the eyes he had praised, murmuring to herself, Pretty soft grey eyes, pretty soft grey eyes, until she would hang up the glass again with a sudden laugh and a rosy blush. In the days when he had gone away to the vague distance and vaguer place, the city called London, Bessie tried to forget all that had gone against her feelings the affection and duty that his son owed to his parents, and she had many things to forget of this kind that would keep surging up into her mind. For instance, she wished that he had not objected to the homespun homemade shirts which his mother and she had had such pleasure in getting ready for him. He might not know it was true, and so her lover urged, how carefully and evenly the thread had been spun, how content with bleaching the yard in the sunniest meadow, the linen on its return from the weavers, having spread out afresh on the sweet summer grass, and washed carefully night after night, when there was no dew to perform the kindly office. He did not know, for no one but Bessie herself did, how many false or large stitches, made larger thoughts by her aunt's failing eyes, who yet liked to do the choicest part of the stitching all by herself, as he had unpicked at night in her own room, and with dainty fingers had restitched, sewing eagerly in the dead of night. All this he did not know, for he could never have complained of the coarse texture, the old-fashioned make of his shirts, and urged on his mother to give him part of his little story of egg and butter money in order to buy newer fashion linen in Highminster. When once that little precious store of his mother's was discovered, it was well for Bessie's peace of mind that she did not know how loosely her aunt counted up the coins, mistaking guineas for shillings, or just the other way, so that the amount was seldom the same in the old black spoutless teapot. Yet this sun, this hope, this love had yet a strange power of fascination over the household. The evening before he left, he sat between his parents, a hand in theirs on either side, with Bessie on the old creepy stool, her head lying on her aunt's knee, and looking up at him from time to time, as if to learn his face off by heart, till his glances meeting hers made her drop her eyes and then a sigh. He stopped up late that night with his father, long after the women had gone to bed, but not to sleep. For I will answer for it, the grey-haired mother never slept a wink till the late dawn of the autumn day, and Bessie heard her uncle come upstairs with heavy, deliberate footsteps, and go to the old stocking which served him for a bank, and count out golden guineas. Once he stopped, but again he went on afresh, as if resolved to crown his gift with liberality. Another long pause, in which he could but indistinctly hear continued words. It might have been advice, it might be a prayer, for it was in her uncle's voice and then father and son came up to bed. Bessie's room was but parted from her cousins by a thin wooden partition, and the last sound she distinctly heard before her eyes, tied out with crying, closed themselves in sleep, was the guineas clinking down upon each other at regular intervals, as if Benjamin were playing at pitch and toss in his father's present. After he was gone, Bessie wished he had asked her to walk part of the way with him into Highminster. She was all ready, her things laid out on the bed, but she could not accompany him without invitation. 
the little household tried to close over the gap as best they might. They seemed to set themselves to their daily work with unusual vigour, but somehow, when the evening came, there had been little done. Heavy hearts never make light work, and there was no telling how much care and anxiety each had to bear in secret in the field, at the wheel, or in the dairy. Formerly, he was looked for every Saturday. Looked for, though he might not come, or if he came, there were things to be spoken about that made his visit anything but a pleasure. Still, he might come, and all things might go right, and then what sunshine, what gladness to those humble people. But now he was away, and dreary winter was come on. Old folks' sight fails, and the evenings were long and sad in spite of all Bessie could do or say, and he did not write so often as he might, so everyone thought, though everyone would have been ready to defend him from either of the others who had expressed such a thought aloud. Surely, said Bessie to herself, when the first primroses peeped out in a sheltered and sunny hedgebank, and she gathered them as she passed home from afternoon church. Surely there will never be such a dreary, miserable winter again as this has been. There had been a great change in Nathan and Bessie Huntroy during this last year. The spring before, when Benjamin was yet the subject of more hopes and fears, his father and mother looked what I may call an elderly, middle-aged couple. People who had a good deal of hearty work in them yet. Now, it was not his absence alone that caused the change. They looked frail and old, as if each day's natural trouble was a burden more than they could bear. For Nathan had heard sad reports about his only child, and had told them solemnly to his wife, as things too bad to be believed. And yet... God help us if indeed he is such a lad as this. Her eyes will become too dry and hollow for many tears. They sat together, hand in hand, and shivered and sighed, and did not speak many words, or dare to look at each other. And then Hester had said, Are we more to tell the lass? Young folks heartbreak we a little, and she'd be apt to fancy it were true. Here the old woman's voice broke into a kind of piping cry, but she struggled, and her next words were all right. We more to tell her, he's bound to be fond on her, and maybe, if she thinks well on him, and loves him, it'll bring him straight. God grant it, said Nathan. God shall grant it, said Hester, passionately moaning out her words, and then repeating them, alas, the vain repetition. The bad place for lying is Highminster, said she at length, as if impatient of the silence. I never know such a place for getting up stories, but Bessie knows no one, and neither you nor me believes them. That's one blessing. But if they did not in their hearts believe them, how came they to look so sad and warm beyond what mere age could do? Then came round another year, another winter, yet more miserable than the last. This year, with the primroses, came Benjamin, a bad, hard, flippant young man, with yet enough of specious manners and handsome countenance to make his appearance striking at first to those to whom the aspect of a London fast young man of the lowest order is strange and new. Just at first, as he sauntered in with a swagger and an air of indifference, which is partly assumed, partly real, his old parents felt a simple kind of awe of him, as if he were not their son, but a real gentleman. But they had too much fine instinct in their holy natures not to know, after a very few minutes had passed, that this was not a true prince. What end does he mean? said Nestor to her niece, as soon as her own. By their macks and warlocks, and he minces his words as if his tongue were clipped short or split like a magpie's. Heck, London is as bad as a hot day in August for spoiling good flesh. For he were a good-looking lad when he went up, and now look at him, with his skin gone into lines and flourishes just like the first page of a copybook. I think he looks a deal better, Aunt, for them new-fashioned whiskers," said Bessie, blushing still at the remembrance of the kiss he had given her on first seeing her. A pledge, she thought, poor girl, that, in spite of his long silence and letter writing, still looked upon her as a distrustful wife. There were things about him which none of them liked, although they never spoke about them. Yet there was also something to gratify them all in the way in which he remained quiet at that end, instead of seeking variety, as he had formerly done, by constantly stealing off to the neighbouring town. 
His father had paid all the debts that he knew of. Soon after Benjamin had gone up to London, so there were no duns that his parents knew of to alarm him and keep him at home. And he went out in the morning with the old man, his father, and large by his side, as Nathan went round his fields, with busy yet infirm gait, having heart, as he would have expressed it, in all that was going on, because at length his son seemed to take interest in all the farming affairs and stood patiently by his side, while he compared his own small galloways with the great shorthorns looming over his neighbour's hedge. It's a slovenly way, thou seest, that of selling the milk. Folk don't care whether it's good or not, so that they get their pint measure full of stuff that's watered afore it leaves the beast, instead of honest cheating by the help of the pump. But look at Bessie's butter, what skill it shows. Part her own manner of making, and part good choice of cattle. It's a pleasure to see her basket all packed, ready for to go to market, and it's no no a pleasure for to see the buckets full of their blue starch water as yon beasts give. I'm thinking they crossed the breed with a pump, not long since. Heck, but our Bessie is a clever canny wench. I sometimes think thou'lt be for giving up the law and taking to the old trade when thou wedst with her. This was intended to be a skilful way of ascertaining whether there was any ground of the old farmer's wish and prayer that Benjamin might give up the law and return to the primitive occupation of his father. Nathan dared to hope it now, since his son had never made much by his profession owing, as he had said, to his want of connection, and the farm and the stock and the clean wife too were ready to his hand, and Nathan could safely rely on himself, never in his most unguarded moments, to reproach his son with the hardly earned hundreds that had been spent on his education. So the old man listened with painful interest to the answers which his son was evidently struggling to make, coughing a little and blowing his nose before he spoke. Well, you see, father, law is a precarious livelihood. A man, as I may express myself, has no chance in the profession unless he is known, known to the judges and tip-top barristers at that sort of thing. Now, you see, my mother and you have no acquaintance that you may call exactly in that line. But luckily, I have met with a man, a friend, as I may say, who is really a first-rate fellow, knowing everybody from the Lord Chancellor downwards, and he has offered me a share in his business, a partnership, in short. He hesitated a little. I'm sure that's uncommon kind of the gentleman, said Nathan. I should like for to thank him my son, for it's not many as would pick up a young chap out of the dirt, as it were, and say... Here's half my good fortune for you, sir, and your very good health. Most on em, when they're getting a bit of luck, run off with it to keep it all to themselves and gobble it down in a corner. What may be his name, for I should like to know it. You don't quite apprehend me, father. A great deal of what you said is true to the letter. Most people don't like to share their good luck, as you say. The more credit to them as does, broke in Nathan. Aye, but you see, such a fine fellow as my friend Cavendish does not like to give away half his good practice for nothing. He expects an equivalent. An equivalent, said Nathan. His voice had dropped down an octave. And what may that be? There's always some meaning in grand words, I take it, though I'm not book-learned enough to find it out. Why, in this case, the equivalent he demands for taking me into partnership and afterwards relinquishing the whole business to me is three hundred pounds down. Benjamin looked sideways from under his eyes to see how his father took the proposition. His father struck his stick deep in the ground and leaning one hand upon it faced round at him. 
Then thy fine friend may go and be hanged. Three hundred pound? I'll be darned and danged too if I know where to get him, even if I'd be making a fool of thee and my son too. He was out of breath by this time. His son took his father's first words in dogged silence. It was but the burst of surprise he had led himself to expect, and did not daunt him for long. I shall think, sir. Sir, what in for dost thou sir me? Is them's your manners? I'm plain Nathan Huntroyd, who never took on to be a gentleman, but I have paid my way up to this time, which I shall not do much longer, if I'm to have a son come in and asking me for three hundred pounds, just as if I were a cow and had nothing to do but let down my milk to the first person as strokes me. Well, father, said Benjamin with an affectation of frankness, then there's nothing for me but to do as I have often planned before, go and emigrate. And what? said his father, looking sharply and steadily at him. Emigrate, go to America, or India, or some colony where there would be an opening for a young man of spirit. Benjamin observed this proposition with his trump card, expecting by means of it to carry all before him. But to his surprise, his father plucked his stick out of the hole he had made when he so vehemently thrust it into the ground, and walked on four or five steps in advance. There he stood still again, and there was a dead silence for a few minutes. It'd maybe be the best thing thou couldst do, the father began. Benjamin sets his teeth hard to keep him in purses. It was well for poor Nathan he did not look round then and see the look his son gave him. But it would come hard like upon us, upon Hester and me, for whether thou'rt a good un or not, thou'rt our flesh and blood, our only bairn, and if thou'rt not all as a man could wish, it's mebby been the fault on our pride of thee. It'd kill the missus if he went off to America, and best too, and the lasses think so much on him. The speech originally addressed to his son had wandered off into a monologue, as keenly listened to by Benjamin, however, as if it's all been spoken to him. After a pause of consideration, his father turned round. Yon man, I wouldn't call him a friend of yourn, to think of asking you for such a mint of money. It's not the only one, I'll be bound, as could give ye a start of the law. Other folks would, maybe, do it for less. Not one of them to give me equal advantages, said Benjamin, thinking he perceived signs of relenting. Well then, thou mayst tell him that it's neither he nor thee as will see the sight of three hundred pound of my money. I'll not deny, as I've a bit laid up again a rainy day, it's not so much as thatin though, and part on it is for Bessie, as has been like a daughter to us. But Bessie is to be your real daughter some day, when I've a home to take her to, said Benjamin, for he played very fast and loose, even his own mind, with his engagement with Bessie. Present with her, when she was looking her brightest and best, he behaved to her as if they were engaged lovers. Absent from her, he looked upon her rather as a good wedge to be driven into his parents' favour on his behalf. Now, however, he was not exactly untrue in speaking as if he meant to make her his wife. The thought was in his mind, though he made use of it to work upon his father. It will be a dree day for us then, said the old man. But God'll have us in his keeping, and he'll maybe be taking more care on us in heaven by the time than Bess, good lass as she is, has had on us at Nab End. Her heart is set on thee, too. But, lad, I ha' not gotten the three hundred. I keeps my cash in the stocking, thou knowest, till it reaches fifty pound, and then I takes it to Ribbon Bank. Now the last scratch there gin me made it just two hundred, and I ha' not but on to fifteen pound yet in the stocking, and I meant one hundred and the red cow's calf to be for best, and she's ta'en such pleasure like a rearing it. Benjamin gave a sharp glance at his father to see if he was telling the truth. 
and the suspicion of the old man of his father had entered into the son's head tells enough of his own character. I cannot do it. I cannot do it for sure. Although I shall like to think as I had helped on the wedding. There's the black heifer to be sold yet, and she'll fetch a matter of ten pound. But a deal on it will be needed for seed corn, for the arable did but bad last year, and I thought I would try. I'll tell thee what, lad. I'll make it as though best lent thee her hunter. Only thou must give her a writ of hand for it, and thou shalt have the money in a riven bank, and see if the lawyer wanted to let thee have a share of what he offered thee for three hundred, for two. I do not mean for to wrong him, but thou must get a fair share for the money. At times I think thou art done by folk, now I wouldna have ye cheat a barn of a brass farthing. Sometime I wouldna have thee so soft as to be cheated. To explain this, it should be told that some of the bills which Benjamin had received money from his father to pay had been altered so as to include other and less creditable expenses which the young man had incurred, and the simple old father, who had still much faith left in him for his boy, was accused enough to perceive that he had paid above the usual price of the articles he purchased. After some hesitation, Benjamin agreed to receive this 200, and promised to employ it to the best advantage in setting himself up in business. He had, nevertheless, a strange hankering after the additional £15 that was left to accumulate in the stocking. It was his, he thought, as heir to his father, and he soon lost some of his usual complacence for Bessie that evening, as he dwelt in the idea that there was money being laid by for her, and grudged it to her, even in imagination. He thought more of this £15 that she was not to have than of all the hardly earned and humbly saved 200 that he was to come into possession of. Meanwhile, Nathan was in unusual spirits that evening. He was so generous and affectionate at heart that he had an unconscious satisfaction in having helped two people on the road to happiness by the sacrifice of the greater part of his property. The very fact of having trusted his son so largely seemed to make Benjamin more worthy of the trust in his father's estimation. The sole idea he tried to banish was that, if all came to pass as he hoped, both Benjamin and Bessie would be settled far away from that end. But then he had a child like Reliance that God would take care of him and his missus somehow or another. It were a no use looking too far ahead. Bessie had to hear many unintelligible jokes from her uncle that night, but he had made no doubt that Benjamin had told her all past, whereas the truth was, the son had said never a word to his cousin on the subject. When the old couple were in bed, Nathan told his wife of the promise he had made to his son, and the plan in which the advance of the £200 was to promote. Poor Hester was a little startled at the sudden change in the destination of the sum, which she had long thought of with secret priders and money of the bank, but she was willing enough to part with it if necessary for Benjamin. Only, how such a sum could be necessary was the puzzle. Even this perplexity was jostled out of her mind by the overwhelming idea, not only of our Ben settling in London, but of Bessie going there too as his wife. This great trouble swallowed up all care about money, and Hester shivered and sighed all night through with the distress. In the morning, as Bessie was kneading bread, her aunt, who had been sitting by the fire in an unusual manner from one of her active habits, said, I reckon we will go to the shop for our bread, and that's the thing I never thought to come to so long as I lived. Bessie looked up from her kneading, surprised. I'm sure I'm not going to eat their nasty stuff. What for do you want to get baker's bread, aunt? This dough will rise as high as a kite in a south wind. I'm not up to need as I could do once. It well he breaks me back, and when I out off to London, I reckon we will buy our bread first time in my life. I'm not going to London, said Bessie, kneading away with fresh resolution, and growing very red, either with the idea or the exertion. But our Ben is going partner with a great London lawyer, and I know still not tarry long but what he'll fetch thee. Now, aunt, said Bessie, stripping her arms of the dough, but still not looking up. 
If that's all, don't fret yourself. Ben will have twenty minds in his head afore he settles, either in business or in wedlock. I sometimes wonder, she said with increasing vehemence, why I go on thinking on him, for I do not think he thinks on me when I'm out of sight. I've a month's mind to try and forget him this time when he leaves us, that I have. A shame, wench, and he to be planning and purposing all for thy sake. It were only yesterday as we were talking to their uncle and mapping it out so clever. Ali thou seest, wench, it will be dream work for us when both thee and him is gone. The old woman began to cry the kind of tearless cry of the aged. Bessie hastened to comfort her, and the two talked and grieved and hoped and planned for the days that now were to be, till they ended, the one in being consoled, the other in being secretly happy. Nathan and his son came back from Highness to that evening, their business transacted in a roundabout way, which is most satisfactory to the old man. If he had thought it necessary to take half as much pains in ascertaining the truth of the plausible details by which his son bore out the story of the offered partnership, as he had been trying to get his money conveyed to London in the most secure manner, it would have been well for him. But he knew nothing of all this, and acted in a way which satisfied his anxiety best. He came home tired but content, not in such high spirits as on the night before, but as easy in his mind as he could be on the eve of his son's departure. Bessie, pleasantly agitated by her aunt's tale of the morning of her cousin's true love for her, what ours would be, we wish we long believe, and the plan which was to end in their marriage, and to her, the woman at least. Bessie looked almost pretty in her bright, blushing comeliness, and more than once as she moved about, from kitchen to dairy, Benjamin pulled her towards him and gave her a kiss. To all such proceedings, the old couple were willfully blind, and as night drew on, everyone became sadder and quieter, thinking of the party that was to be on the morrow. As the hours drew on, Bessie too became subdued, and by and by her simple cunning was exerted to get Benjamin to sit down next to his mother, whose very heart was yearning after him, as Bessie saw. When once her child was placed by her side, and she had got possession of his hand, the old woman kept stroking it, and murmuring long earnest words of endearment, such as she had spoken to him while he was yet a little child. But all this was weariness to him. As long as he might play with and play and caress Bessie, he had not been sleepy, but now he yawned loudly. Bessie could have boxed his ears for not curbing the escaping. At any rate, he needed not to have done it so openly, so almost ostentatiously. His mother was more pitiful. That tired, my lad, said she, putting her hand fondly on his shoulder, but it fell off as he stood up suddenly and said, Yes, do sit tired, I'm off to bed. And with a rough, careless kiss all round, even to Bessie, as if he was just tired of playing the lover, he was gone, leaving the three to gather up their thoughts slowly and follow him upstairs. He seemed almost impatient at them for rising the times to see him off the next morning, and made no more of a goodbye than some such speech as this. Well, good folk, when next I see you, I hope you'll have merrier faces than you have today. Why, you might be going to a funeral. It's enough to scare a man from the place. You look quite ugly to what you did last night, Bess. He was gone, and they turned into the house, and settled to the long day's work without many words about their loss. They had no time for unnecessary talking, indeed, for much had been left undone during his short visit that ought to have been done, and they had now to work double tides. Hard work was a comfort for many a long day. For some time, Benjamin's letters, if not frequent, were full of exultant accounts of his well-doing. It is true that the details of his prosperity were somewhat vague, but the fact was broadly and unmistakably stated. Then came longer pauses, shorter letters altered in tone. About a year after he had left them, Nathan received a letter which bewildered and irritated him exceedingly. Something had gone wrong. What? Benjamin did not say. But the letter ended with a request that was almost a demand for the remainder of his father's savings, whether in the stocking or the bank. Now the year had not been prosperous with Nathan. There had been an epidemic among cattle, and he had suffered along with his neighbours. And moreover, the 
price of cows, when he had bought some to repair his wasted stock, was higher than he had ever remembered it before. The fifty pounds in the stocking, which Benjamin left, had diminished to little more than three, and to have that required of him in so peremptory manner, before Nathan imparted the contents of this letter to anyone, Bessie and her aunt had gone to market on a neighbour's cart that day. He got pen and ink and paper, and wrote back an ill-spelt, but very implicit and stern negative. Benjamin had had his portion, and if he could not make it do, so much the worse for him. His father had no more to give him. That was the substance of the letter. The letter was written, directed and sealed, and given to the country postman. Returning to Highminster after his day's distribution and collection of letters, before Hester and Bessie returned from market. It had been a pleasant day of neighbourly meetings and sociable gossip. Prices had been high and they were in good spirits, only agreeably tired and full of small pieces of news. It was some time before they found out how fatly all their talk fell on the ears of their stay-at-home Isla, but when they saw that his depression was caused by something beyond their powers of accounting for by any little everyday cause, they urged him to tell them what was the matter. His anger had not gone off, but rather increased by dwelling on it, and he spoke it out in good, resolute terms. And longer he had ended, the two women were as sad, if not as angry as himself. Indeed, it was many days before either feeling wore away in the minds of those who entertained them. Bessie was the soonest comforted, because she found a vent for her sorrow in action. An action was half as a kind of compensation for many a sharp word that she had spoken when her cousin had done anything to displease her on his last visit, and half because she believed that he never could have written such a letter to his father, unless his want of money had been very pressing and real. Though how he could ever have wanted money so soon, after such a heap of it had been given to him, was more than she could justly say. Bessie got out all her savings of little presents of sixpences and shillings. Ever since she had been a child, of all the money she had gained for the eggs of two hens called her own, she put all together and it was worth two pound, two pound five and sevenpence, to speak accurately. And leaving out the penny as a nest egg for her future savings, she put up the rest in a little parcel and sent it with the note to Benjamin's address in London. From a well-wisher. Dear Benjamin, Uncle has lost two cows and a vast of money. He is a good deal angered, but more troubled. So no more at present, hoping this will finding you well, as it leaves us, though lost to sight to memory dear, repayment not needed. Your affectionate cousin, Elizabeth Rose. When this packet was once fairly sent off, Bessie began to sing over her work. She never expected the mere form of acknowledgement. Indeed, she had such faith in the carrier, who took parcels to York, whence they were forwarded to London by coach, that she felt sure that he would go on purpose to London to look at anything entrusted to him, if he had not full confidence in the person, persons, coach, and horses to whom he committed it. Therefore, she was not anxious that she did not hear of its arrival. Giving a thing to a man as one knows, she said to herself, is a vast different to poking a thing through a hole into a box, the inside of which one has never clapped eyes on, and yet letters get safe some ways or another. This belief in the infallibility of the post was destined for a shock before long, but she had a secret yearning for Benjamin's thanks, and some of the old words of love that she had been without for so long. Nay, she even thought, when day after day, week after week, passed by without a lie, that he might be winding up his affairs in that weary, wasteful London, and coming back to another to thank her in person. One day, her aunt was upstairs inspecting the summer's making cheeses, her uncle out in the field. The postman brought a letter into the kitchen to Bessie. A country postman, even now, is not much pressed for time, and in those days there were but few letters to distribute, and they were only sent out from Highminster once a week into the district in which Lavender was situated. And on those occasions, the letter carrier usually paid more than calls on the various people for whom he had letters, so half standing by the dresser, half sitting on it, he began to rummage out his bag. 
It's a queer-like thing I've got for Nathan this time. I'm afraid it will bear ill news in it, for there's dead letter office stamped on the top of it. Lord save us, said Bessie, and sat down on the nearest chair as white as a sheet. In an instant, however, she was up, and snatching the ominous letter out of the man's hand, she pushed him before her out of the house and said, Be off with thee, afore aunt comes down. And ran past him as hard as she could till she reached the field where she expected to find her uncle. Uncle? said she breathless. What is it? Oh, uncle, speak. Is he dead? Nathan's hands trembled and his eyes dazzled. Take it, he said, and tell me what it is. It's a letter. It's from you to Benjamin. It is, and there's words printed with it. Not known at the address given. So they've sent it back to the writer. That's you, uncle. Oh, it gave me such a start with them nasty words printed outside. Nathan had taken the letter back into his own hands and was turning it over while he strove to understand what the quick-witted Bessie had picked up at a glance. But he arrived at a different conclusion. He's dead, said he. The lad is dead and he never knowed how as I were sorry I wrote to him so sharp. My lad, my lad! Nathan sat down on the ground where he stood and covered his face with his old withered hands. The letter returned to him was one which he had written with infinite pains and at various times to tell his child, in kinder words, and at greater length, than he had done before, the reasons why he would not send her the money demanded. And now Benjamin was dead. Nay, the old man immediately jumped to the conclusion that his child had been starved to death without money, in a wild, wide, strange place. All he could say at first was, My heart, Bess, my heart is broken. And he put his hand to his side, still keeping his shut eyes covered with the other, as though he never wished to see the light of day again. Bessie was down by his side in an instant, holding him in her arms, chafing and kissing him. It's none so bad, uncle. He's not dead. The letter does not say that. Do not think it. He's flitted from that lodging, and the lazy tyke doesn't know where to find him. And so they just send you back the letter instead of trying from house to house as Mark Benson would. I've always heard tell on South Country folk for laziness. He's none dead, uncle. He's just flitted, and he'll let us know afore long where he's getting to. Maybe it's a cheaper place, for that lawyer has cheated him, you recklet, and he'll be trying to live for as little as can. That's all, uncle. Do not take on so, for it doesn't say he's dead. By this time, Bessie was crying with agitation, although she firmly believed in her own view of the case, and had felt the opening of the ill-favoured letter as a great relief. Presently, she began to urge both with word and action upon her uncle. He should sit no longer on the damp grass. She pulled him up, for he was very stiff, and as he said... All shaken to dithers. She made him walk about, repeating over and over again her solution of the case, always in the same words, beginning again and again. He's none dead. It's just been a flitting. And so on. Nathan shook his head and tried to be convinced, but it was a steady belief in his own heart for all that. He looked so deathly ill on his return home with Bessie, for she would not let him go on with his day's work. His wife made sure he had taken cold, and he, weary and indifferent to life, was glad to subside into bed and rest from exertion which his real bodily illness gave him. Neither Bessie nor he spoke of the letter again, even to each other, for many days, and Bessie found means to stop Mark Benson's tongue, and satisfy his kindly curiosity by giving him the rosy side of her own view of the case. Nathan got up again, an older man in looks and constitution by ten years of that week in bed. His wife gave him many a scolding on his impudence for sitting down in a wet field if ever so tired, but now she too was beginning to be uneasy at Benjamin's long-continued silence. She could not write herself, but she urged her husband many a time to send a letter to ask for news of the lad. He said nothing in reply for some time. At length he told her he would write next Sunday afternoon. Sunday was his general time for writing, 
and this Sunday he meant to go to church for the first time since his illness. On Saturday, he was very persistent against his wife's wishes, backed by Bessie as hard as she could, in resolving to go into Highminster to market. The change would do him good, he said, but he came home tired and a little mysterious in his ways. And when he went to the ship in the last thing at night, he asked Bessie to go with him and hold the lantern while she looked at an ailing cow. And when they were fairly out of earshot of the house, he pulled out a little shop parcel and said to her, Don't put that on my Sunday hat, wilt thou, lass? It'll be a bit on a comfort to me, for I know my lad's dead and gone, though I do not speak on it for fear of grieving the old woman and ye. I'll put it on, uncle, if... But he's known dead. Bessie was sobbing. I know, I know, lass. I do not wish other folk to hold my opinion, but I'd like to wear a bit of crepe, out of respect to my boy. It would have done me good for her to have ordered a black coat, but she'd see if I had not on my wedding coat Sundays, for all she's losing her eyesight, poor old wench. But she'll never take notice o' oh, a bit of crepe. Thou'll put it on all canny and tidy. To be continued. Or should I say, to be continued. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to our website, www.victorianscribblers.com. There, you'll find all of our episodes, news and updates, a swag shop with cool things like coffee mugs, sweaters, and t-shirts, and of course, links to all of our social media. You can also find the link to our Patreon account, where a minimum monthly contribution will give you access to all sorts of goodies and extras. We're able to keep growing and bringing you quality content because of our patrons, so if you love the show, please consider contributing. Finally please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We'd really love to see some iTunes reviews under the tree this Christmas. Music for this podcast, courtesy of Muse Open, www.museopen.org.